I was born into a religious faith group. I intend to stay there until the day that I die. And when I die, I believe that God will be ready to say, well done. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking in good faith with a venerable man I have read about and looked forward to meeting in person, Pastor Franz Davis. Pastor Davis, thank you for coming in today. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. I understand you're from Gough, Georgia. Gough, Georgia. Uh, it's cough with a G, and that's where I was born and reared, went to high school or through high school in that community. Uh, it was a rural farm community, and uh, after that, then went on to college. Were your people church-going folks back then when you were young? Absolutely. In fact, the very first thing I remember about my father uh, was that he got us up on Sunday morning. We did our chores, and then he took us to church. And then when we came home from church, we spent the afternoon with him and his third-grade education reading uh, from the Bible. Wow. Beautiful memories. Absolutely. What do you remember about the church, the services, anything that impressed on you when you were very young? Well, there are a number of things that uh, I remember about the church that I attended as a young boy. One, the church only met once a month. It met on second Sundays. The pastor of the church uh, had four churches that he pastored, and one of them was the church that uh, we attended. We attended Sunday school as well as regular church service on second Sundays. And whenever we were in Sunday school, uh, most of the time, the only children that were there were the children from the Davis household. So it was a fairly small church. It was in the rural. In fact, many years later, the building of the church burned, and it was uh, nearly a week before uh, the congregation found out that their building had been burned down so far out in the country. Wow. What was it that prompted you at first to go into ministry as a youth minister or to get any schooling in the matter? Well, I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was about 12 years old and then made a firm commitment that I was going to be a part of a church for the rest of my life. Uh, later on, when I in 1966, when I was trying to figure out what my role in life would be, what my mission would be, what my participation in the community would be, I heard, spiritually speaking, the voice of God say, ministry. And I then decided uh, that that was a call from God for me to go into ministry, that that was the place that I could make a significant difference in the lives of the people in uh, our community. Would you tell me a little bit about that experience at age 12? That's a pretty big lifetime commitment. Well, at 12 years old, we had once a year in August a revival meeting. It was a meeting that lasted for a week long. Uh, there would be a guest uh, minister that would come in and he would preach every night. Those of us who were not believers sat on what we called the mourner's bench, and that was the first 
pew or bench in the church. We would sit there and they uh, focused the service on getting us to understand what the Bible taught, what people believed, and how then to become a believer. And so ultimately, uh, with uh, prayer of my own and prayer of others for me, I decided to respond to the call that was issued at the end of the sermon to accept Christ as my personal Savior. It started with hearing the Word of God and understanding what the Bible had to say, and then secondly, believing that, and once I believed it, making a profession or confession of faith uh, with my mouth. When you felt that you had received a call, and I love the way you phrased that, not an audible voice, but somehow personally. Absolutely. It was personal. Uh, It was not uh, in the Bible. uh, One reads uh, the Apostle Paul's experience, for example, on the road to Damascus. And when one reads that, uh, if one reads carefully, one will discover that Paul heard God speaking to him But there were other people with him who didn't hear the voice. They knew something happened, but they didn't hear the voice. And the same was true with me. It was a personal, spiritual experience with God, between me and God alone. So in any training you got, which could be useful to learn more of the Scripture and and learn about pastoring or being a minister, that's just in addition to what you initially felt as your call. Well, the call is first, and then in addition to the call, the uh, background of formal training was required. And in my particular case, uh, that's a bachelor's degree as well as a master's of degree in religious studies or master's of divinity is the particular degree that a person to be a pastor would be expected to get. And that comes after. So one has the experience of the call of God. One expresses that to the congregation. The congregation says, we agree. And then you go to get the training that's needed in order to be effective in the work of pastorate. Did your father live to see you pastoring? Uh, My father and mother both lived long enough to see me as a pastor. Both of them came here to Salt Lake City and visited at various times and were uh, very excited to see their son be a uh, leader of a congregation uh, and especially being so far away from home, from Georgia to Utah. Yes. But before I do want to ask about your congregation here and the time you've spent Will you talk to me about involvement with civil rights and how that tied together, because it did tie together with faith. It does tie together. In fact, when I was a small boy, I grew up in Georgia, about 100 miles from where Martin Luther King Jr. grew up. And Martin Luther King became kind of the model, the example of civil rights during the 1960s, 1970s. And I had an opportunity to meet with him personally, to interact, to interview him, to write an article about him. And so he became my role model. And I saw in Dr. King the practice of his belief put into action by his behavior, which was civil rights in his particular case. So I decided that that would be a good way for me to go, that uh, it wasn't enough to just believe it, but you had to then show that if you if you said you believed in love for everybody, then you showed it by loving everybody. 
He never did choose the easy road, did he? Well, it's not an easy road to uh, be a pastor, to be a civil rights leader. It's uh, difficult to uh, say to the people who are around you, some of whom are on the one accord with you, many of whom are not, that you love them and that you want the very best for everybody. And yet, isn't that the essence? That's the essence of faith in God, of Christianity. That's the essence of our being. And if we're going to truly be full human beings and in the best sense demonstrate that to the community where we live, it's going to be a difficult journey, but we have to climb. And I remind the people at Calvary, the church that I'm pastor of, that the if you're going to climb a mountain, you can't climb up the smooth side. You have to go up the rough side of the mountain. <laughs> I love that image. That's beautiful. How did you feel in Selma? Do you remember... Were you worried? Were you scared? Were you full of faith? Uh, I was a student at the time that the march in 1965 was from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And as a student, I had no vested interest. I didn't have a job that I was concerned about. I didn't own any property that I was putting at risk. And so for me, uh, it was... uh, an opportunity to make a change on behalf of the people who lived there, and I was not really afraid. Now, during the march along the way, uh, we lost a lady, Mrs. Valdaluzo was killed, and after that, then we were very nervous and very worried that the Ku Klux Klan might uh, do us harm. And in fact, the president of the United States responded to that by federalizing the Alabama National Guard and having other military bodies to come and make sure that we were safe. So it was a scary time, but it was also a time that we could see the effect of the actions bringing about change. Yeah. So much of which has lasted Much of which has lasted, but unfortunately, it seems that we have come either to a screeching halt about uh, acceptance and welcoming and guaranteeing the rights of all people, or we're in the process of trying to turn the clock backwards. And I'm afraid or bothered by our current attitudes, which say that uh, it's okay to hate, it's okay to treat other people with uh, dispar- in disparate ways. Let me ask you about coming clear out to Utah. It was your first pastorate. If I understand, you were expecting to be here maybe a year? Right. I came to Utah in 1972. Uh, I had left Georgia, went to college in Alabama, left Alabama and moved to Florida, where I started my ministry in Florida. And then I enlisted in the United States' Air Force to avoid being in the Army or the Marines as a draftee was brought out west by the military. And so I Mm. was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, then went to Southeast Asia, came back to Idaho, Mountain Home Air Force Base. And when I was discharged, I then moved back to California where I continued my education. I went to college and at um, multiple colleges and institutions and got degrees. And then when I was graduating from UC Berkeley, was offered a job at the University of Utah as a teaching fellow and graduate student for one year. 
And that's what I came for. And my intent was to spend that year to get a master's uh, degree at the University of Utah in communications and then to return to Georgia where uh, I had some several opportunities offered to me there. But you stayed. Uh, I stayed because uh, just before I left, just a matter of days before I had planned to leave, the pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church in downtown Salt Lake City uh, resigned and said he was leaving and asked the congregation to have me fill in until they could find somebody. So I stayed. They then called me as their pastor, and uh, for 40 Three plus years now, I've been pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church. <laughs> pastor Davis, what we really need is six hours to do a mini series to do justice to your experiences, your thoughts on different eras of history, and your value of education. It's very kind of you to take time to talk with us specifically about faith and belief here sure. for, for these few minutes. But uh, I'm so impressed with the course of your life, and I'm so impressed with the outreach to other people that your church does? Well, education for us is the one major opportunity for bringing about significant change in terms of life. That if you want to be upwardly mobile, you need formal education. If you want to be more positive about life, uh, you need to broaden your understanding and knowledge of uh, things and of people. And education is essential if one is going to be effective in doing the work of leadership in a given community. My wife and I, Willene, went to some of the same uh, schools. And as we went to school, we determined that if we were going to make a difference in our society, we'd have to get ourselves prepared, much like Dr. Martin Luther King did. Dr. Martin Luther King earned a the highest degree possible before he started doing much of the work that he did. But once he was prepared, as the ground swelled and people said, it's time for a change, he was ready for leadership. And that was my goal in life, was to get as much formal training and education as possible, and then to be ready when called upon to be a leader. Since that time, of course, we've made a special effort to give the same opportunity to other young people so that we have the Pastor France Davis Scholarship, where we have students all over the state of Utah. We have students in high school that are on scholarship. We have run, and my wife was instrumental in running a preschool reading program. So we do a lot of things in terms of education because education is one of those things which will help you then to be all you can be. I'm trying to imagine going before a congregation week after week and planning what can you say, what can you do that will strengthen people, that will help connect them with God. What are the things for you personally that make you feel prepared, like I'm right with God, I'm in touch, and now I'm ready to, to reach out to other people? I start all of the time by reading the Bible. And therein, I find inspiration for speaking to the needs of people. So I spend about half my time uh, reading and studying and preparing and deciding that, hey, this is something that every human being needs in order to reach their fullest potential. And then I spend the other half of the time trying to figure out what it is that people need, visiting hospitals, visiting jails, 
uh, interacting with families and their personal situations, talking to people, just being about the community. So half the time in preparation, half the time getting familiar with the people. And then on Sundays, I'm ready to deliver two, three, sometimes four different sermons to a group of people and to speak to their hearts to try to get them to then reach their potential. Over that much time, ministering to that many different people, spending that much time in study over the years, as your walk of faith has continued, how is it different for you than when you first began? Well, it's different for me uh, than when I first began because, first of all, I started in the rural area. Uh, I was doing uh, very little to impact the lives of a whole group of people. But being a pastor, I get a chance to impact the lives not only of the congregation, but the whole community in which I live, the state, the surrounding area. And I'm one of the national leaders of our church organization. I'm one of the vice presidents of our national church's training arm. And therein, I get a chance to affect the lives and touch the lives of people in a much broader sense. Uh, our congregations are not only here in Utah and in the United States of America, but we are all over the world. Uh, we have congregations in the continent of Africa, in Asia. We have them in Germany. We have them all over the place. And I get a chance to participate in providing training for those people who are leaders of those congregations as well. What do they need to know to be good leaders? They need to know, first of all, that they have to know who they are themselves. Until they can come to grips with who they are themselves, then they can help other people to realize who they are. So the starting place is coming to grips with who they are, who they are as a person, but who they are in relationship to God. And then secondly, they have to know God's word. They have to know the Bible and be able to be facilitate understanding of the Bible. There's a wonderful story in the Bible of an Ethiopian eunuch who was joined by one of the apostles, and the apostle asked him, do you understand what you're reading as he was coming from church? And the young man's responded was, how can I accept somebody help me? And then uh, he was helped by the uh, spiritual leader who was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ to be able to understand that. So I teach them that you got to know who you are yourself. You have to know the Word of God. Then thirdly, you have to know who other people are, that they are in many ways identical to you. Just they have the same warts and same issues, same wants, same needs, same abilities as you would have. And once you know that, then you have to also have a commitment to sharing and to helping to bring about the change. I teach the members of Calvary that until you help others to reach their potential, you'll never reach your own. When you're seeking inspiration, when you're in prayer, when you have events happening in people's lives and you're in prayer for them, how do you perceive answers to prayers? Well, I pray sometimes asking God to give me a clear signal, a, I, I lay out a fleece, if you will, and like, ask him to— Like Gideon. Like Gideon did, and ask him to speak to me in that way. 
other ways, uh, just by the urgings that come as a result of the uh, Paul writes to Timothy that a man who has a desire has a good desire. And so just that urging that comes from the word. And then when reading the Bible, there are things that jump out at you based on where you are now. Uh, for example, when 9-11 happened, uh, I had one thing planned for the sermon, but had to change it because now people were in crisis over 9-11, hmm. as far away from New York as Salt Lake is, but people were in crisis. And so I, then I had to f- hear, listen to God speak about something different than what I had planned. I plan as best I can, as if everything depends upon me, but then I approach it as if it all depends upon God himself. Are the two of you parents? We are parents, have three children, four grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. We've been parents for many years. Yes. How does that affect your belief? Our beliefs are are passed on from one Mm. generation to the other. My father passed the beliefs on to me, his parents passed their beliefs on to him, and my job is to pass those beliefs on to my children, my children's children, and my children's children's children. <laughs> Some of those still to come. I assume yeah, you don't have that many greats yet. Well, we have uh, greats as well as grands, so uh, <laughs> we're looking for some more. Have there been difficult moments or difficult questions where you felt like, I really need to know this, but you had to wait, or you might still be waiting for? There are some issues that, as I read, study, and prepare, that uh, I am not yet at a point that I can talk about those, that uh, I need to mature more, I need to grow more, I need to understand more, and those issues are difficult. And as we deal with those I just do the best I can with them now in hopes that later on I'll be more thoroughly prepared to talk about those issues. Where do you get your remarkable energy from? Uh, I suppose uh, the only place that I can credit with the energy that I have at 70-plus years old is uh, from God, that God gives me health and strength, and then allows me to be motivated, inspired to be able to go forward. 43 years, I believe, in this congregation. 43 plus years as pastor. What do you hope for the future of this congregation Well, my 20 hope, years down the line? My hope is that the congregation will be able to find another pastor, that uh, we can have a transition plan and uh, I can move aside and somebody else can carry on carry on to higher levels and higher degrees than what I have done. I believe that everybody ought to build on what foundation you have, and then the next person builds on that foundation until we eventually get to where we are all on our way to. What inspired your programs giving meals to over 100 people on many occasions? We look out among ourselves and ask the question of the people at our church, what are your needs, what are your hurts, what causes you pain along the way? And so we are inspired to respond to those. So the first thing, major thing that we did nearly 31 years ago was build a housing complex for elderly 
and physically handicapped people because we found that there were lots of people who had lived and had spent their lives living in their homes, but now were at a place that they couldn't cut the grass anymore. They Mm. couldn't keep up uh, their house, so they needed housing. So we built a housing complex. And as far as I know, we're the only single congregation in the state of Utah that has built a housing complex subsidized for elderly and physically handicapped people. And then we decided that maybe one of the things we could do for the many homeless, which is a shameful mark on our society, that we have so many people that are homeless and are hungry, is that we could help to feed them. So every Sunday morning, we feed on average 300 to 800 people every Sunday morning for the last nine years. Mm. And then uh, we are inspired to do what we can educationally for young people. And so we provide them with opportunities to learn how to read, to uh, be tutored in math and the sciences, and then to go on to higher education at one of our institutions, uh, colleges, and universities. We are committed to whatever affects people and causes them to hurt, to do whatever we can about that. And so our inspiration comes from a desire to see everybody at their, again, at their fullest potential. And the only way they can get there is if we help them. What have been the biggest challenges over those 43 years? I would say the biggest challenges that we have faced has been having adequate space to do the kinds of ministry that we believe needed to be done. Also having adequate resources. We are self-funded, self-governed, and so forth and so on. We don't have a big parent body someplace that infuses resources. So we have to raise our own. So raising of resources, getting property, uh, and then dealing in a community where there's a dominant religious group that had taught us a particular negative belief, and that was a real problem. Until 1978, that was an official problem. Uh, It remains an attitudinal problem even today, though, that there are people who still have the attitude. And so those are are some of the obstacles that we've had to overcome. Do you see change? I do see change. For example, in terms of the dominant religious group, we have an interfaith group that meets regularly with their leadership as well as other leaders from the Episcopal, the Catholic, and so forth community. I've seen changes in terms of the law that uh, said that everybody needs the right to vote and an opportunity to be treated uh, equal. I've also seen that people now are willing to work together more, putting aside the differences that they have, but working together on the things that they have in common. For example, the homeless issue, I think all of us essentially agrees that that's an issue and a problem that we all need to work on. So we can work together on that, although our faith beliefs might be different. Rather than being separate groups with the same goal— To work together to make more happen. When we feed the hungry on Sunday morning, uh, there are people from LDS community who come, people from Catholic community, people from various belief groups who come to help to ensure that people are fed. And hunger 
God did say that the poor you have with you always, but nowhere did he say you have to have the hungry with you. And the homeless. And the homeless. There must be times when you feel the approval of God. Well, I feel the approval of God on an ongoing basis. I could not do what I do and put up with the kinds of responses and the treatment that I get sometimes if I did not have a sense that God said, you okay, you're doing okay, you are making a difference. There's more you can do, but you're making a difference with what little you have. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask? What would you like to share about your personal experience with faith and belief? Well, my personal convictions of faith and belief are inbred. They have been there from the very earliest times that I can remember. They will remain. I was born into a religious faith group, and I intend to stay there until the day that I die. And when I die, I believe that God will be ready to say, well done. Pastor France Davis, thank you for speaking with us in good faith. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we learn about the Fill the Pot ministry for feeding the hungry and homeless at Calvary Baptist Church. And we'll hear from a panel of listeners discussing the ideas brought up by our guest, Pastor Davis. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. That's the choir from Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In the first half of the show, we talked with their pastor, Franz Davis. He mentioned one of the ministries of his congregation and what they've undertaken, which is to feed the hungry and the homeless, not just sometimes, but every day. According to the church website, mercy is that special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to feel genuine empathy and compassion for individuals, Christian or not, who suffer distressing physical, mental, or emotional problems, and translate that compassion into cheerfully done deeds reflecting God's love to alleviate the suffering. Fill the Pot is a community outreach ministry of the Calvary Baptist Church, providing services to the Salt Lake City homeless population since 2008, operating seven days a week, providing hot meals, clothing, furniture, and access to other agencies with other services. Fill the Pot is funded through donations from the Calvary Baptist Church and individuals in the Salt Lake community. And after eight years of serving in Pioneer Park right downtown, the Fill the Pot ministry has been blessed with their own brick-and-mortar location just a few blocks west of the park. Finding the needs in your community and organizing to meet them. Education and preparation to be a better tool in the hands of God. Do those ideas resonate with you? We ask a group of listeners to share their thoughts after hearing from the pastor. Chaley West is of Italian descent, though she was raised in Argentina. She loves gardening, knitting, and family history. Little Little Giddens lives in Orem, Utah, where she uses the arts as a therapist. 
Jörg Wieser has coached youth soccer for 20 years, walked his dog every day for two years now. He has six children and three grandchildren and is originally from Germany. Sam Payne is a radio producer, storyteller, songwriter, children's author, arts educator. You can hear Sam every day on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio. Well, what a great conversation between Pastor Davis and and Steve Perry. Pastor Davis outlines this process of coming to kind of an active belief, and he talks about hearing the word of the Lord and then believing and then making a confession. And I'm interested in all of those things, in all of those parts of the faith journey. But what was fascinating to me was the rest of his talk about the action that a Christian takes. I, I, I'm always interested in in the behaviors that accompany religion. And for some of us, what our religion looks like is we we sit around and discuss <laughs> ideas about religion, you know, or or we or we pray or we meditate, you know. And I, I was just really it really resonated with me, this notion of the work of his church being to discover the needs of the people in his congregation and then work to ameliorate those those needs, this religion of action, uh, that, that was really resonant for me. I, too, was drawn to Pastor Franz's, um, his, his commitment to what his ministry is. I believe if we're, if we're called or we feel like we are followers of God, then we all have that same um, inclination, I'm hoping, to reach out and to ask those questions so we can meet the needs of the people and so that we can make a difference. But what I kept hearing from him is, yes, in his profession, this is what he does, in his education, in his calling, this is where he is. But I keep asking, well, isn't that for all of us? Aren't we all walking in those shoes? Or, I don't want to say should, but isn't it important that we all try to walk in those shoes? I I remember when I was uh, younger, 13, 14 years old, I, I had a, my best friend was from Korea. I'm, I'm from Germany. My best friend was Korean. I had some other friends in a Catholic and a Lutheran groups. And um, I remember thinking, what difference does this really make, this religion? Here I have a friend who doesn't believe anything. I have fr- other friends who believe this or that. I really asked myself, what, what difference does that really make, what I believe and I, I think uh, Pastor Davis had really good answers to this to this question. I, I like towards the end of his his interview, he referred to meeting up with God and and how God would respond and and, and said uh, he gets a, a certain confirmation from God that, that God would tell him. Yes, you're doing good. You're doing good with what you've been given, and you're making an impact. And I, I really liked what he said about that. I, I try to make an impact too in my little environment. Yeah. I grew up in a totally different environment and different culture. Most of the families that I knew were poor. Everybody shared everything. There was not a formal effort to help somebody. It was just a natural thing. And uh, he brought me a lot of wonderful memories of growing up in an environment like that. Uh, we share beds, we share clothes, we share uniforms, we shared food. We were not um, nervous about asking the neighbor for a cup of flour or a couple of eggs. And uh, I see that now in the environment that I live, 
is a little different, and you have to be more formal, more prepared. You have to put the effort to serve. So I imagine at the time he was a little boy, it might have been like it was for me, and he had to learn how to do the how to do the service in a in a formal way, if I understood it right. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I think the very most impactful moment for me in, in the interview, uh, the one that filled me with the most resolve, was uh, Pastor Davis's response to, to Steve's question in 42 years. I mean, it was a pretty expansive question. He said, in 42 years, what are the biggest challenges that you have uh, that, that, that have opposed your work? You know, what are the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome? And he, and he mentioned three things. And, and he, he said w- one of the things was finding enough space to do the things that we want to do, uh, getting the resources to do the things that we need to do, and uh, opposition from the, from the pr- predominant religion yeah. <laughs> in, in the area. And I'll tell you, one, the reason that was so impactful for me, I, I happen to be a member of that predominant religion, right? And it filled me with thoughts of the ways that groups uh, in their own camps can hinder each other in the doing of good work, you know. Uh, it, it filled me with thoughts of my my mother. When my mother was very young, she came out of a, a Protestant Christian household and joined the Mormon church. And from that time to, oh, I don't know, 30 years later, it was kind of a full court press on my mother to to, to get her back, <laughs> you know, a full court press on my mother from the rest of her of her family. And I, as a child, was oblivious to a lot of that. I didn't discover that that was taking place until I was much older. But when I began to discover that that was taking place, I thought, good heavens, how, how this – uh, how, how this kind of crashing together of these ideologies is hindering the good work in the world of uh, on both sides, you know, and is hindering the happiness of the people, you know, involved in this conflict on both sides. And I, I found myself when I heard Pastor Davis talking about that, I think, resolving whatever my faith is to not be a member of of the religion of of the hindrance of good work in the world. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. and 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 to 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 resolve to see that that any expression of my religious faith is is expression that helps good to be done in the world. You know, one thing that that resonated with me from what he said uh, when when he said that he came to Utah with the expectation of staying only here for a year, and and then he more or less got stuck here, and he's been here for forty three years. Um, my my own experience has been similar. I came here to um, get a master's degree at uh, Brigham Young University, only with the intention of getting that MBA and then returning to Germany. But um, I I have been here ever since. I've been here only for twenty two <laughs> years or so. Um, I've I've made several efforts to return to Germany. I've um, been to England once. I've uh, been to Washington once. But it seems like uh, this is our yo-yo state. We always come back. To, to Utah and, and, and to Provo specifically. But I'm grateful for it. I, I, I love it here. And I, I do believe that the Lord has a, a hand in, in these kind of moves and in, in mine in particular. I, I've been trying to figure out for the past 20 plus years why it is that I'm supposed to be here. And I, I don't know if I have the answer, but I, but I do know that just like I think Pastor Davis, I, I'm, I'm here for a purpose and I can do a lot of good while I'm here. 
I guess thinking about some of the things that Pastor Davis is saying, it makes me wonder how confident any of us is really about the specific reasons that God puts us in a place. I mean, you know, he's in Salt Lake for more than 40 years without thinking he's ever going to be here that long, you know. And and like you say, Jorg, and like Pastor Davis has demonstrated by living and working as a Baptist minister for that long in predominantly Mormon Utah, I mean, I guess it's a lesson that says we can help others wherever God may plant us. And I think sometimes we forget that. I need to go back to what you said, Shelley, about how you were raised. My mom was a single mother for many years, and then she remarried, and then she's now single again. But I was raised kind of like you. When my parents divorced, we ended up going to Tennessee, and she made enough money, and we ended up in California, and we lived with my grandmother. And there were three of us in one bed. There was this sense of support, or it was just kind of like an innate power within you to just help one another. And I think that that is what I was raised with because I I continue to do that. We still share things in, in my family and hand-me-downs and things. And, and I continue to, to kind of have this attitude of, well, what do you need? Like Pastor Franz said, from the South, they say Miss Lita. So we say the first names. But it's Pastor Franz to me. And what are your needs? And sometimes we need to break out of, I don't feel the, the conflict of this predominant religion that I'm a part of as well that came later in, on in my life. But it's, it's my desire, and I think it's part of me to continue to, to walk in that way of to see what the need is and to ask what the need is. My mother, who is not a member of this predominant religion, but she sees the, this religion as helpful and supportive and outreaching. And I think it's because of how I was raised to see things in a different way and to communicate things in a different way. So I'm truly grateful for that. And she grew up in the civil rights and all of those things. And that is huge for her. Huge. We didn't have in Argentina any feeling of prejudice. There were Italians and Jews and German. And it was a melting pot. And uh, for us, whenever a member of another race would come, we would grab them by the hand and invite them to come to our house and tell us what it was like, in the place where they came from, what they ate. It was a great thing to us. So that was another thing that, for me, like this uh, Pastor Franz talks about living among prejudice, I have a hard time seeing it. But I did get to go to Alabama to Montgomery, and I visited the, past, the the little church where Martin Luther King preached, and I also visited Selma, and uh, it was an eye-opener to me. And I love listening to his story of how he, because of the gospel and his belief, he could look ahead and look up and and be positive. There's a moment when he was talking about his choosing of the ministry as his career, you know, and there's a, a phrase that he used that I that I wrote down and want to remember. You know, he says, I, I considered what I wanted my participation in the community to be. There are a lot of things to consider when you're choosing a life path for yourself. And these are days when often you find yourself leaving the community of your youth to 
do something somewhere else, you know. Uh, again, people as they're choosing a career might think, you know, what's going to provide for my family the best? What's going to what's going to satisfy whatever my ambitions are the best? And I, I think it's a beautiful question to ask, you know, what, what kind of participation do I want to have in the community? And then he goes on to describe all of the good and bad that are a part of the community that he finally landed in. And that lifelong commitment to play that role, the role of the minister in the community, that's a big commitment, I think, born of a really lovely question. You know, how, how am I going to participate in the community that I'm in? I was impressed by that, the, the motivation behind behind him, really behind his life, what what drives him. He didn't set out to be a leader Or, or, or to be the, the popular guy or the, the guy that, you know, stands in the limelight. But he, he wanted to serve God and he wanted to serve the people. He wanted to really make an impact. I love that about him. And in order to do that to the best of his ability, he felt he needed to get a really good education. He needed to hone his skills to, to be an, an excellent force in, in this, this work of, of the Lord. I love that about his comment about him as a person. I think that's a wonderful example to all of us. It was interesting also to hear him talk about the, the fact that one needs to know oneself before one can serve and, and progress. And um, it brought to mind when I was growing up, I was the only girl in the family And I truly believed that the world revolved around me. <laughs> Everybody spoiled me. I was a cute little girl, and my grandmother always dressed me beautifully. And my hair was done, and everybody, oh, what a cute little girl. And life taught me later on that I wasn't the center of the universe. When I was... Uh, in my 30s, I was divorced. I have four children. I had no education. I had no child support, no family around, except for my former in-laws that were wonderful to me. And it, there were a lot of nights that I spent kneeling down and trying to find out who am I really? And uh, why do I have to go through this trial right now? What can I do for my children? How can I serve them better? How can I make sure that they don't become negative about life because their father left? And at that time is when I felt the closest to God. And I felt like if I put my hand up, I would touch him. That's how close I was to him. I knew I was his daughter. I knew he loved me. And I knew that With his help, I, can, I could feed my children, and I did. I was able to have a, a job that helped me. I worked a lot of hours, and when I finished paying for my car, I went ahead and didn't have to work so many hours, so I could start getting an education. So little by little, I did. I became a registered nurse. By then, my children were gone and on their own and doing well. But somehow I set the example because when they had been in trouble, they realized that they needed to go for education. But to me, it's important to know who we are first. And then we can jump or dive off the board and help others. I, I agree. I, th I think um, if, if we know who we are in, in relationship to God, that is an incredible source of of strength and of motivation that then drives us through our lives into education to 
I, I had a, an ethics professor once when I was going to school who told us that God will take us however we are. You know, he, he, he loves us regardless. Um, but wouldn't we want to present ourselves as the best possible people to him that he can do the most with the most wouldn't we want to get an education so that if we really love god he can use the best version of us rather than a broken down version i mean he loves us regardless but wouldn't we want to be the very best so we can serve him the very best so i i, I do believe that knowing who we are really knowing it deep down is a huge motivator for us I do want to point out that when Jörg was referring to the best version of ourselves, he gestured toward Chaley. And when he <laughs> talked about the broken down version of ourselves, he gestured toward me. I, I, I just want to know, I just want everybody to know I saw that. <laughs> but I, I think about, he, he talked about, when they were talking about the civil rights movement, and Pastor Davis was, was referring to what he perceives as this kind of almost regression from some of the progress that was made during the civil rights movement, I gosh, I really, I really am f have been feeling that in, these, in, in this last while. You know, I've really been, as I've watched the, the conflict that is expressing itself all over the country, you know, I find myself really feeling like, uh, gosh, I, I'm not living in the country that I thought I was living in. I'm seeing things that I thought we were past. I'm seeing things that I thought weren't a part of us anymore. And it's led to, and speaking of knowing yourself as you did, Shelley, it's, it's been a real time for me of self-reflection and, and self-examination and looking at myself to see if, if I am possessed of some of those same characteristics that are driving some of the conflict that I'm seeing around me, you know. And that's been a, I mean, certainly an enriching, painful, thoughtful, difficult time for me, you know, this the, coming to know oneself is tricky, you know, coming to know oneself is a, is, is a process that's not always pleasant. Sam, uh, you took me back to when I was growing up. I didn't like who I was because of what people told me I was. <laughs> I wasn't comfortable in my skin because people were comfortable with my skin. So it, it was, it was, and I didn't see myself reflected in television, things like that. But it wasn't until I understood myself in relation to God that I was able to define myself in a powerful way and to rid myself of that negativity that I was getting from outside sources. So that was a huge turning point for me. And I got to where I, I'm, I'm, I really am grateful for who I am. Like you said, Shelley, you know, that I'm a daughter of God. I'm grateful for that. But I also know that I still have such room to grow, that I'm, I'm, I'm still a baby in a lot of different ways. But from then to now, it's completely different. It's, I, I've made a huge shift in how I think about myself and in the knowing of myself. And I remember a time of my life where I just thought, okay, I feel this goodness. I feel this love. I feel this connection to God. And I wish I could take, open up my heart and take it out and put it into this person who hates. And then you would feel that. Can you feel that love? I wanted them to, to feel that. But then I thought, well, no, no. Down the road now, like just recently, because of this stuff we're experiencing in our society, like you said, Sam, I shifted that to think, no, I would like to open up my heart and have God put his heart into mine 
so I could feel that because mine is imperfect. And if that could happen to everyone, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? To just open up ourselves enough so he can put that in you so we can feel that and know ourselves and put that out into the world. That is what's needed. That is a prayer. That's such a prayer for me. But that's my prayer. Can I just feel his heart beating in me so I can do good with it? As I hear you talking about that, I think about kind of this sense that I had from Pastor Davis about this link, this connection between hearts and our moral development, this whole business of learning to love that Lee is talking about, and the intellectual education and development, how all of that can come together, lead to positive action and service. There seems to be an important tie-in of some kind. He mentioned that Martin Luther King had taught that education was so essential to be able to serve. I, I love that too. I, I, I think that kind of, I mean, certainly it's a stereotype and an, in, an inaccurate stereotype in, in many cases, you know, to assume that people who are religious aren't interested in education, <laughs> you know, the people who are, who are interested in education aren't interested in religion, you know. But this, this dedication to both, this dedication to the notion that you can't be an effective servant of the Lord, you can't live an effective faith life without getting as much education as you can, you know, that's that cool. Well, since we're talking about Martin Luther King, and I can need to talk about the civil rights part. <laughs> Thank you very much. I loved how he looked up to Dr. King. I mean, for his religious conviction, but also because he had that education. He said he, he reached the highest that he could, and he won the Nobel Prize and everything. But I just love the fact that I feel what he was saying is it helped him to become the leader that he was. Is that correct? accurate? Mm-hmm. And for, for me, I go back and I, and I thought about my mom. That's where I went to. Um, my mom was such a lover of Dr. King. And when he was assassinated, it kind of shifted things in her world. The civil rights movement, and I love how Pastor Franz said, you know, we've kind of gone backwards, and it's this whole issue about equality has come to a screeching halt. Oh, my goodness. I thought, here's my mother who has so many fears and insecurities based on how she was raised and how she was treated and how she was looked at. To this day, she, she doesn't vote because she doesn't believe that it's going to make any difference. She still feels like she's being judged when a Caucasian looks at her. She visited here once and had to leave because she felt so uncomfortable in her environment. But how can we, and that's the question, in our own ministry and, and in our own walk as we try to follow God, hope to overcome this? How can we sit and be okay with it's almost come to a screeching halt or, or we're going backwards because it was horrible. My great-grandfather was killed by the KKK. This is, my, this is my history. So, oh, my goodness, I want to be out in the community and make a difference. Oh, my goodness, I want to feel a sense of progression in our thoughts and how we view each other in more of a godlike way because that is what makes the difference. Can I see someone the way God is going to see them? Can I treat them that way? 
can we do less to put hate out there? Because I, I don't, my little people, I can't even say that word because it just gives that word more power. I just need to replace it with something good because I know what hate does. I know what it does. So I don't say it because I don't want to fuel it. I just want to figure out how to fix it and make it better. And I love that he addressed that. And, and I am grateful for the memory that it took me to and how grateful I am for my mom. Even though she's wounded, she still believes and she still hopes. And I'm her daughter and I get to do that too. I want to keep believing, I want to keep hoping, but I want to do something too. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially to Pastor France Davis for sharing his time, his stories, and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts, your ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime via email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith and Christine Knuckleby. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith.